Hello and welcome to Troutcast, where we interview interesting guests with unique stories and experiences. I am here with our esteemed guest, David Parks. David is a Vietnam War veteran who served as a member of the 856th Radio Research Detachment, working in support of the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. Specifically, his job was close support of the infantry via communication intercepts and short-range radio direction finding. Thank you, Dave, for accepting to be our, our guest. Thank you, Matt. You're more than welcome. My first question is a particularly simple one. Do you remember how you felt and where you were when President John F. Kennedy was first was assassinated? I sure do. I was in high school bet uh, and uh, between classes. We had just uh, gotten out of the math class, I believe, and I was headed toward English when the announcement of him being wounded uh, in Dallas came over our public address system. And uh, the whole school just erupted in wows. You know, they couldn't believe it. So we all got to our classes and the teacher made the announcement that uh, President Kennedy had been shot. We were waiting for further information on whether he was, uh, had passed on or was going to make it. We did hear a little later that he had um, been taken to a hospital and was in an operation. And sometime after that came the word that he had died during the operation. Uh, when you first heard that President Kennedy was brought to the hospital, were you hopeful? Did you at all know his condition or because I guess you were getting secondhand accounts of uh, the news right yeah our principal at the high school was announcing um, from watching the news he was probably watching television at the time yes I, my, my, my feelings were you know a, a great hope that he would live um And then when the word came that he had actually died, it was, I just kind of went into shock. I believe they left the school out at that point and, and people started uh, going home. Um, and I rode a bus every day, so that's what I did. I went outside and waited for the bus. And everybody was very subdued and not a lot of talking going on. Uh, there was one individual that He had something smart ass to say, like, thank God that son of a bitch is dead. Wow. And he was uh, promptly taken to the principal's office and given a few days off. After John F. Kennedy, we, uh, of course, the United States had President Lyndon B. Johnson, his vice president right. at the time. Um, he had a major, well, I'd say influence, but also he was there for the most part during the Vietnam War. What was your and your comrades general opinion of President Lyndon B. Johnson? Uh, my personal opinion was he was kind of a joke mm. to me personally. I, I you know, his Texas draw and uh, I don't know, just the way he went about business. I, I think uh, at heart he was a good man. Mm -hmm. But I think he was, had a huge ego, and um, he was heavily influenced with uh, McNamara. Yeah, you can't take McNamara out of the equation when you're talking about Johnson. 
Mm-hmm. And McNamara, the whiz kid, as we called him, wanted uh, to continue the war and try to win it technologically. When uh, there was that, in fact, there was nothing that was going to ever win that war. That came out in the Pentagon Papers many years later. I think Johnson was already out of office by then. In fact, I know he was. But uh, I, I didn't think one way or another about Johnson, except that uh, my opinion on him soured as time went on. And I he was in office when I first went to Vietnam. But I think he had gone by the time I... Uh, Oh, he announced his resignation. I, I remember that too. He, he, I was in Vietnam when he announced his resignation. And I thought, great, good, get out of there. <laughs> and uh, Nixon came in <clears throat> promising to end the war. Yep. And uh, he was lying his tail off. Hmm. His idea of how to end the war and everybody else's was uh, a slightly different. He wanted to invade uh, Cambodia. In order to to win, well, cut off the um, NVA and uh, BC uh, means of um, supply, which you know that that that's a that's a good strategy actually, and, and you want to do that if you you have an enemy that has a sanctuary in a neighboring country. You wanted to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Eventually, yes, uh, he came to that. After he got reelected, he was he was running on a ticket of uh, um, ending the war. It's just that his idea of winning the war was not by just you know, unilaterally pulling out the American troops, which is what I wanted, uh, but by invading Cambodia. Anyway, that it was all kind of complicated in there. You know, everything was moving pretty quick. And I don't think I was in, I know I wasn't in Vietnam at the time that they invaded Cambodia. That came a few years later. But I remember the Nixon, Watergate, and all that stuff going on. Uh, I was back. I was, a, I, I was a potter. I made pottery in Boston at that time. Okay. Were you drafted or did you go voluntarily? I volunteered. Um, you ever hear of the Ku Klux Klan? Yes. Okay. Ku Klux Klan wanted to kill me. Uh, <laughs> really? Yes. And because I had had um, a Negro couple to a party that I had thrown uh, one evening, and we had a good time and ended up late in the next morning. Well, not late the next morning. It was early the next morning, I should say. It was still dark, about 3 o'clock in the morning. We went down to a local restaurant to have some breakfast. Mm-hmm. And what we didn't know was uh, the reason the parking lot was full at that little restaurant was it was an after-hours Ku Klux Klan meeting. Wow. So, so when we walked in there... Uh, the black couple walked in first, and they didn't even say a word. They just turned around and walked back out as I was coming into the door there. And I walked up to the counter and asked for a menu. And 
The guy said, uh, we don't serve nigger lovers in here. And I looked around. All these people were looking at me. And it's beginning to stand up. I said, damn. I turned around, ran out the door, and ran back up toward our house, uh, being chased by these fools. He didn't catch me because I hid pretty well under a car in a service station parking lot. But that touched off uh, a several day episode of the Klan wanting to keep our house under surveillance and uh, harass me, this, that, and the other. So uh, at one point, they called my mother. They found out who I was. They found out my mother lived not too far away in the neighborhood. Called her and said, we're going to kill your nigger-loving son. And so my mother came over to the house and she said, what in the hell is going on? <laughs> and I said, I told her everything that happened. She said, you got to get out of town. These boys are serious. Mm. I said, oh, how am I going to do that? She, she said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll call around, see if you can go up in northern Georgia and hang out up there. Some of your relatives. And then she happened to talk to my dad, who was overseas at the time, I believe. Yeah, I think he was in Korea. He was he was the Korea Army, by the way. Well. So, um, and he said, well, why don't he just join the Army to get out of town? So my mother comes back over to the house, and she says, what you got to do is join the Army tomorrow. Going from one dangerous situation to another one. Yeah, so I said, oh, okay. I wasn't planning on going in uh, for a while now, but I will do that. Because, you know, to me, it looked like the best solution just to get away. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were continuing to, the Klan was continuing to harass me and uh, people who actually went into the house. Anybody that showed up at the house got a talking to. There's nothing but nigger lovers in there. Why are you going in there? What's your business? You know, shit like that. Intimidation. So I went downtown Atlanta the next day to the Atlanta recruiting station, and I talked to um, uh, the recruiter, and he gave me a 100-question uh, test. And it was an aptitude, aptitude test. And uh, I scored very high on it. I think it was a 99, some 80, 98 or 99 on it. And he said, oh. He said, I want you to come back tomorrow. I said, well, I was kind of hoping to join today and just leave town today. Mm -hmm. He said, what's your rush? So I told him what my rush was. And he said, oh, <laughs> okay. He said, we'll get you out of town as quick as you can, but uh, I, I, just, I have a fellow coming in and wants to interview you tomorrow. He's with the Army Security Agency. And he says, I don't know what they do. They're very secretive, but... He's been here recruiting all week, and uh, anyone who scores high on their initial aptitude test, he wants to talk to. So that's the way that worked out. Eventually, I got in the Army and went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina for my training, and uh, then the, F, the Ku Klux Klan kind of forgot about me by the time I got back from basic training. You know, I had a little leave there about two weeks before I went to my advanced training up in Massachusetts. So that's the story of why I joined the Army. 
is that um was it when you were in massachusetts that you uh joined the rd um oh, it was a usasa u.s army security agency yes um when i signed up i talked to that asa recruiter there in atlanta the next day and he said we're very interested in having you join our organization and he said it's by invitation only and we only take the top 10% of those who are uh, enlisting in service. He said, you have the opportunity, you can take it or leave it. You will have to get a security clearance before you can go to your advanced training. And that will be a comprehensive background check. And you will eventually have a top secret crypt cryptographic um, security clearance, which you must maintain the whole time you're in the ASA. So uh, I signed up for all of that and signed papers for the advanced training. And they wanted to train me as a Morse code intercept operator, which I didn't know anything about Morse code, but uh, being foolish, I had scored high on their Morse code test too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what they were gonna do with me. Uh, most of us new guys coming in were either made into Morse code intercept ops or uh, analysts of some sort or another. Uh, traffic analysts, which is studying the enemy's order, order of battle and uh, learning stuff from the exterior of any communications traffic between your targets, mm. et cetera. But, you know, I got O5H, which at that time was Morse code intercept operator, and that's what, what my job was in the, during in the military. And also picked up a secondary MOS when I went to Vietnam and, and became a radio direction finding operator. So here's the way it works. When you're in the ASA, you have to maintain that security clearance, like I said, and it means you've got to be a boy all the time. And they are checking on you. They're going to counterintelligence agent by you at, at some bar downtown you know, when you're on your break or something, and uh, see if he, he'll try to compromise you. He might even he might even run a, a woman by you, um, uh, a woman of the evening, supposedly to um, well see if you'll tell him anything. I was too slick to get captured and and uh, thrown out because of any kind of shenanigans like that on their part, counterintelligence for the next station that I was going to, I'd been signed to Okinawa for 18 months to practice my uh, intercept skills. And on Okinawa, our targets were uh, mainland China, the army. So I've become an expert on uh, mainland China armies, uh, their, uh, their, some of their air force, and then spy traffic, some of their spy networks I intercepted, and also diplomatic traffic eventually. As I got better at becoming an intercept operator, I was moved to these higher positions, so to speak, so because the code that these uh, stations worked at, uh, the Morse code was uh, much faster 
Um, but parenthetically, it was much clearer too because they used better transmitters, et cetera, on these, on these targets that uh, I was assigned to late in my 18 months there on Okinawa. Ended up with uh, working some special projects, which I won't go into here because they're still uh, classified simple. You know, they're not classified highly these days, but they still have a classification to them, so I can't talk about them. But anyway, once I left there, left Okinawa, I went to Vietnam, straight to Vietnam from Okinawa. Anyway, once you, you ASA was not supposed to be in uh, Vietnam because supposedly, this is what I was told by that damn recruiter in Atlanta, ASA recruiter, the ASA has no soldiers in a war zone because they have uh, too high of a security clearance. Well, that was a bunch of ripe BS. And they do have um, ASA troops in war zones. They just change the name. <laughs> they, they give them a cover name. And in Vietnam, it happened to be radio research units. So I became a radio researcher. <laughs> <laughs> that was the cover name there. And it was, you know, it was an open cover name. People knew who the hell we were and what we did. Um, but we wouldn't confirm it to them. But you can bet that uh, NVA, the VC, knew exactly who we were and that they had similar units. They had a very good uh, intercept and uh, exploitation unit like ours. And it was, it was, it was called something like the signal service, uh, you know, the Vietnamese signal service or something like that. And they were very effective against uh, Americans over there. And uh, we, we did our job, they did their job. And I've heard recordings of them uh, carrying out some of their operations against American units. For instance, um, breaking into between, you know, the middle man in the middle attack where one side blocks the headquarters of another, but then talks to the lower echelons of uh, a unit and gets them to move into a position where they can be ambushed or move into a position where the enemy can call in artillery, American artillery, in on the U.S. troops. Um, I've heard the recordings of them doing that and they're in perfect English and, and using uh, all the jargon that American troops use and everything. They, they had us down pat. Oh. And we had them down pat. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew them inside out. Knew the tricks that they pulled. I knew when they would be on the air. And, you know, in, everything I did was in support of the 199th Light Infantry. Uh, where they went, I went in the field because it had to be fairly close in to get uh, direction finding on those enemy transmitters. But my first day in country, I uh, flew into Tonsonut Air Base and we got off the plane. It was a Flying Tiger 707 jet. Now Flying Tiger, was a designation for 
a CIA-ran CIA uh, proprietary airline. So those guys, those pilots are actually working for the CIA. And we got off and went into um, a big terminal there. And uh, I had instructions to uh, make a phone call as soon as I landed and got into that terminal. I was supposed to make a phone call to my unit, the 303rd Radio Research um, Company, Battalion, I'm sorry. 303rd Radio Research Battalion. I had a phone number that I had to call. So I called them, identified myself, and they said, we're coming to get you. Just stay right where you are. And while I'd been making that phone call, someone had snuck up and stole everything I had with me, my duffel bag. And uh, <laughs> dumb of me, I wasn't watching it. I didn't have my radar up by then. <laughs> anyway, took, they took my duffel bag, stole it, and I'm sure everything in it ended up on the black market in, in, in about half a day. But that meant I didn't have any uniforms except the khaki uniform that I was wearing at the time. So and I arrived at uh, 303rd. I was supposed to um, spend the evening there and process in the next day with the 303rd and get my final assignment wherever they were going to send me in country. So uh, the 303rd ran a uh, pro in processing for uh, ASA types like myself, who are now radio research types. That was my first day. I spent the night there and we processed in the next day, did all my paperwork and got me assigned to the, you know, in, got me in country, signed in. And then they further assigned me to the 856 Radio Research Detachment. And when I asked what that was, they said, well, they support the 1995 Infantry, which are just down the road here. You don't have far to go. We'll get you there when we get a Jeep available. So that pretty well describes my first couple of days in, uh, in country, mostly uh, just processing in and hotter than hell. A lot hotter than Okinawa, although Okinawa could get pretty darn hot. But a lot of fresh, I mean, that's the first time I'd seen grass huts, for instance. Mm -hmm. People living mm -hmm. in grass huts, uh, uh, just the smells were a lot different. You, a lot of sewage smell around in the air. And they're open, you know, they're open benjo ditches. We called them benjo ditches when we were on the Okinawa. It's a Japanese term, but what else would we call them? They were open ditches with sewage in them, is what they were. And the greens, man, Vietnam was green. It's one of the th outstanding things that I remember about it. So that's, that's pretty much me in the first few days I was there. Now, my job, it turned out that People who were trained as O5Hs, Morse Intercept Ops, were much better at running uh, a direction finder in Vietnam because of their training as O5Hs than the regular O5D, uh, which was your special identification techniques operator, were at doing it. Now, usually an O5D's job is to do direction finding. But an O5H just had a knack for being able to listen to the conversation and also do the direction finding at the same time. 
I could I could monitor a conversation uh, in Morse code and tell what they were doing and know exactly what the next thing was probably going to be. So these these things are pretty rote after you know the techniques, and I could put it out to the other two uh, DF teams in the one nine ninth, um, well eight fifty sixes DF teams, which was called the Driftnet team, by the way. That, that was our code word for the our DF network, the Driftwood. So we put it out to the Driftwood net. We put these signals that we found uh, using the uh, the PRD1 radio direction finder, radio receiver. So you get your signal up, you listen to them for a little bit to see who they are, identify them as actual NVA, VC, you could tell, as opposed to regular uh, South Vietnamese troops or um, Laotian, Cambodian, and several other signals that would come in and across and skip into us from uh, Asia. You know, Malaysia, for instance, they all use pretty much the same radio procedures, but you, you could tell by certain indicators who it actually was, and you had to know that distinction. Now, that was one reason us intercept operators were better at doing DF than the um, uh, regular DF operators that would operate, say, in a field station or something. They just didn't have, they didn't, they, they didn't know the Morse nuance, I guess I'll put it that way. They didn't know the lingo well enough because all they do when they're at a DF station, like a big one, is they will, um, the targets will be fed into them and the O5H who feeds it into them, into the special identification techniques area, he's telling their operators what the uh, target is doing. So if the target's sending a, a message, that's called foxing. And you'll just tell the SID operator, um, target so-and-so is foxing. And then if they, if they end their message, they, then they go into collating back and forth. Your target is the outstation that, that copied the message is asking for repeats on certain, certain number message within the, within the message. He wants to know what number 35 was again, the 35th group. Well, I'll tell my SID operator, well, they're collating. They go from messaging, foxing, to collating. And then if, if they're, um, you know, whatever whatever my target is doing, I'm telling the SITROP operator exactly what they're doing. And they don't, so they're not really listening to the targets. You know, they don't really care what they're saying, just as long as it matches what I'm telling them. They know they have the right target, so they'll go ahead and get a bearing on it. That's that's kind of the way it works. Am I confusing you? No, it's super interesting. I feel like I'm trying to absorb everything you say because as a history nut, what you're saying, your first-hand accounts are incredible. Yeah, well, it is very interesting stuff. And uh, people don't understand the, the little stuff that goes on in a war, you know? Something like... Some fool like me, knowing our enemy's communication so well that I can uh, copy it and, and anticipate what's going on, and, and I know that they have a multitude of tricks they can try on me to uh, get me off their trail. And they did try them, 
all the time, but it wouldn't work because I had seen it too many times. I, I just knew what they were going to do next. You know, they were going to change frequencies, for instance. Do you think fondly about your time back in Vietnam? Did you have any good memories you hold from it? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, some things that happen among the guys, uh, some funny things that happen. Some guy getting shot in the ass. Now, that may not sound funny to you, but it's funny to me. And his expressions, I'll never forget. I heard that bullet hit his butt. He was out, he was, uh, it was early in the morning. We had had a sniper that was bothering us. Uh, and this one place we were at, it's called, a, it was, oh yeah, Fire Support Base Stephanie. This uh, sniper had a 50 caliber weapon. And he would, yeah, he would harass us uh, in the morning and late evenings. He'd wait all day watching us. Then he'd pick out a target and lower down on it in the early afternoons. That's when this guy got shot. I had, no, it was in the morning. Because I had just woken up and I stepped outside the bunker that I slept in, my fighting bunker. And uh, I looked over, I saw this guy on the toilet over there. He was on a slit trench with a, you know, just some a wooden structure with some holes in it, sitting up there out in the open. That's normal. Then I heard that 50 caliber go off. I jumped down. Um, I hit the ground. I looked up, and just as I looked up, he, that guy was trying to get off that toilet. He'd raised up and he was, he was actually squatting at this point. And then this, this red mist slapped up behind him and the bullet had just grazed both cheeks of his ass. Oh my God. Yeah, he locked up and he froze and he fell over. He just locked up, fell over. And especially on his face, is unforgettable. <laughs> so... To me, that was kind of humorous. But that, that sniper killed a couple of people. And he damn near killed me a couple of times. Um, you know, so funny things happen. And, you know, that's, you get kind of a grim humor when you're around a lot of crazy shit. I know one thing you wrote to me was that you uh, partic particularly like the sunsets over there. Yes, the sunsets were quite enjoyable, oftentimes. Um, the sun was huge setting on the horizon, just huge, magnified by the atmosphere. And it was hotter than hell. I mean, it could be, it could get to, I remember one time it got to about 115 there. Whoa. With 100% humidity. So, you know, it can get very hot. So you welcome that sun going down because it got started getting cool cooler immediately but they were just fabulous and the uh, pinks and purples and stuff on the clouds and the big old orange suns setting and it went down fast once it hit the once it hit the horizon the bottom edge of it it just sunk you know you can just watch it sink and actually it's probably already down what you're seeing is the atmosphere Uh, magnify it hmm. and uh it's setting actually out over the ocean is that true no it was setting over cambodia actually 
But it might have been setting over the ocean according to where you were in Vietnam. So they were just beautiful, they're gorgeous, and I do remember them quite distinctly. In um, your introduction to me, you said that uh, you've served between 1967 and 1968, which would place you directly during the Tet Offensive. Yes, in Vietnam, yeah. I, I was uh, 65 to 69 in the Army, four years. And then I, I did uh, about five more years as a civilian for the uh, NSA. But anyway, yeah, uh, in Vietnam, I was there for 6768, got there in November. So you got December and then January, January 31st is when Tet broke out. And a little known thing that most people don't even know about was that after Tet, there was the May 5th offensive. Oh, really? Yeah, where the VC tried to break back into Saigon and raise a lot of hell. But uh, we, uh, just like we did during Tet, we, we kicked their ass. Now, I'll tell you something about, you know, Tet was a great example of winning the, winning the skirmish but losing the war mm -hmm. for America. And we kicked the shit out of them um, during Tet and also the May 5th offensive. But politically, they won the day, especially on Tet. Politically, they won that, that contest right there. They won the war right there. Could you elaborate? Uh, because of the way the press portrayed um, everything, the press was very surprised when the VC showed up at the embassy and uh, damn near took it over. And they made a big deal out of it. And they, they, they would talk endlessly about how surprised the U.S. Army was when the Tet Offensive hit. Well, that's bullshit. The ASA, the Radio Research Detachments, knew full well that Tet was coming. Mm. We had we had intercepted their full battle plan, and it was in many many parts. But they had gotten it out several months before, and had been talking about it on their radios. You know, for a couple of months before they actually hit. So, the U.S. intelligence ASA knew it. CIA didn't know it. It didn't it didn't show up on their screen. Uh, they um, they were saying that the VC were defeated, and Journal Westmoreland was listening to him, to the CIA. He liked that. He liked to think that he was winning the war. Mm. Uh, the ASA was telling him, "You're not winning the war, and your figures are way wrong." ASA figures, those uh, CIA figures, uh, for. Troops drinks for NSA, for the NVA and the VC are way off. They don't have nearly as many. Actually, they have a lot more troops than what the CIA is telling you. That's what I should say. Hmm. So Westmoreland did not tend to want to hear what the uh, ASA was telling him. And he discounted us and he, and he poo-pooed 
the information we had until about a week and a half before Tet hit, when other indicators started coming into him from other intelligence sources that, um, like LERP teams, for instance, long-range recon patrols, were telling him of massive troop movements by the NVA VC and telling him where, which was around Saigon and the other major cities in uh, Vietnam, made him nervous. So he pulled he pulled the troops back in around the cities about a week, in some cases only a few days before Ted happened. But we knew it was coming and he had been warned, Westmoreland hmm. and Johnson. But um, or was it Nixon by then? I don't know. I forget. So that's kind of the way it happened. Uh, the press made everybody, and American people were listening to the press. So the press was saying, oh, America was surprised. And uh, the light of the tunnel that General Westmoreland was talking about was this huge offensive, Ted offensive. We're not winning the war. The American people stopped believing Westmoreland because of his optimistic, uh, you know, press releases yeah. and interviews and stuff like that with the press. And therefore, they stopped believing uh, President. So he was getting his information from Westmoreland. So. American people lost confidence in our leadership, and that's how we how we lost the war. Could you talk a little bit about your involvement in the Tet Offensive, especially your experience at Bien Hoa Air Base? Sure. Um, the 199th Light Infantry uh, pulled back in around Saigon because our primary duty, uh, 199th's primary duty, was to protect Saigon. And otherwise, we were used as a kind of fire brigade. Now, let me explain that. Now, a fire brigade, in my interpretation, is when something happened somewhere and another larger unit needed support, they would send for us. So we'd go help them for a little while and uh, get things straightened out and then be released to wait for the next, you know, we were a quick reaction force, a brigade strength. You were sent from action to action? Yes, all the time. Wow. And I worked, we worked with, uh, some of the units we worked with was 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One, whose motto, by the way, was, if you got to be one, you may as well be a Big Red One. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the 25th Infantry, Tropic Lightning. Wow. Um, 1st Cavalry Division, a 9th Infantry Division. Mm, who else? One other, there was one other division in there that we used to help a lot. But in fact, we were out helping the 25th Infantry Division out around uh, Tainin, city of Tainin which was northwest of uh, Saigon, they had wanted to do an operation up, up near the Ab Cambodian border, near the Parrot's Peak. So we occupied their old positions around Tainan 
and Nui Ba Din, which is a mountain. And uh, while they went on further west, out near the border with Cambodia, to carry up some operations. And when they were done with that, they came back in and then we went back to Saigon, um, deployed up northeast of Saigon for just a day or two when we got called back into positions around Saigon. And I ended up with uh, my partner. We ran two-man DF teams. I think his name was Anderson. I always confuse it whether it was Anderson or Johnson, but I think it was Anderson. And Anderson and I uh, were on Benoit Air Base, and we were berthed with the uh, military air police unit on Benoit Air Base that during this period. Now, we were only there about two weeks, but uh, the first week of that was Tet. Um, so he and I were billeted with the air police. That's where we slept in their barracks. And uh, we ate with them. And there, at that time, was a huge sand pile. I mean, this is as large as like a three-story house, you know. So we thought that would be a good place for our uh, PRD-1 uh, radio direction finder to be sighted on top of that hill. Because, you know, you got clear line of sight all around from one end of the air base to another and up to the north of us or the west of us across the Songbee River and uh, just a great line of sight for radio intercept, which is what that uh, PRD-1 loved, uh, clean line of sight. So we set that uh, thing up there and we built a circular sandbag enclosure to put the PRD-1 in. We called it a PURD, by the way, P-U-R-D, just slang. We didn't want to say PRD-1 all the time, so we just said PURD. So we set the PURD up and we lived with a Air Force guys there, and that was fabulous living. Uh, are they the rumors had... true that Air Force uh, personnel are the most well-fed, well-kept uh, members of the Army? Hell yeah. Oh, yeah? Those, those guys, those Air Force guys, they weren't Army, but they, they, they were Air Force, but they had everything, man. I mean, they had beautiful showers and um, food. My God. You go into their mess hall, for Christ's sakes. You know, I, I've been used to eating sea rations in the field every day. That's all we ever ate. And uh, to be in this lush environment all of a sudden was just like a kid in a candy store. So we marveled at how well they had it made. And they could go into their mess hall in the morning and order steak and eggs. Custom. Wow. Wow. Custom eggs, lobster and eggs, once a week. Once a week they had lobster and eggs. So, you know, it was just amazing. And, uh, okay, so we're there, and uh, Anderson and I were up working the um, PRD one one evening. Had to be the 30th, January. 
and about 12 o'clock, there were no targets on the air at all, which was highly, highly unusual. That's prime time for them to communicate. So what had happened is they had all, all gone radio silent. So we kept at it for about another hour. So it's getting toward one o'clock and, and uh, we looked at one another and said, well, nothing nil heard for nothing heard for an hour now. I'm gonna call back into the headquarters to see what they got going on. So I did. We had a, a, a remote radio up there that was uh, attached to a voice scrambler radio on our Jeep, which was at the bottom of the hill. So I contacted our base and they said, no, we, we're not hearing anything. Um, we think they're moving, meaning they were moving across land to their targets because they'd gone radio silent, packed them up, took off. And uh, so Anderson and I looked at one and we said, fuck it, let's go get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah, let's go. Now, he'd already had a tour in Vietnam. He's a very cautious guy. Went back down the Jeep, unhooked that remote wire to the radio, went back to the air police barracks, got in our bunks, and went to sleep. And about 3 o'clock, in fact, it was exactly 3 o'clock, I, I woke up here in a kaboom down at the other end of the airfield. And then a kaboom, getting closer. Kaboom. And it's walking up toward me. So I said, fuck. Jumped out of the bed, grabbed my weapon. And I didn't have my boots on. I had my rest of my uniform on because I never never took everything off. And um, just because I was in that plush barracks, I had taken my boots off, which was a mistake, as always. I took off just my weapon and ammo bag. I was headed toward the bunker. It's not far from the barracks, but uh, I can hear these explosions getting closer and closer. And finally, a flash went off behind me and a kaboom lifted me up and threw me to the ground ahead of me. And if I'd kept running, I would have ran into the next rocket. Wow. But I didn't, I got knocked down by the one behind me. So, and it, th it, it threw a piece of wood in my face, in my forehead. I still have a scar from, but you know, that didn't hurt me much. It just bled a little bit. Hmm. So when those rockets passed, I could hear some small arms fire. So I made sure my weapon was loaded and I got up and I headed I ran toward the bunker, which was not far off. And I, I got there, I hit and I rolled into the entrance of the bunker and there was a dead man right there by the entrance. It was a black sergeant who'd had a heart attack, they told me later, um, from all of the excitement. So we, those rockets came back down, they made another pass down to the other end of the runway and stopped. That was the end of the rocket attack. We had some mortars in there too. We didn't know it at the time. And some small arms fire was going around. So 
needed to get back to the barracks. I wanted to get uh, my boots and this, that, and the other. A few, a few things before um, Anderson and I were going to head back up to our listening post. So that, that was kind of an evening of my Tet experience. Um, we did finally get up there after a couple more adventures, air police stopping us and thinking we were sappers, which they had all over that base. Uh, sappers were shooting the shit out of the place. But we didn't run into any. We didn't get killed by any. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. So that, yeah, that, that was good. So um, we got back up there. It went to work, and there were targets everywhere. We, we were working that that DF machine like it was nobody's business, and uh, sending the results back up to our headquarters, and they were plotting them and then uh, giving them off as targets to the infantry. Doing then they would do whatever they decided to do. At that time, they were so busy repulsing the attacks on the base which happened to be down at the other end of the base. And it was the, um, I think it was the 274th or 294th NVA regiment and its sister unit, the 295th NVA regiment that were attacking uh, Long Beach Air Force Base. Now, a tragedy happened in there that evening, the CO, the captain that ran that um, Air Force uh, security unit, he and his sergeant were trapped in a bunker on the on the bunker line down there at the other end of the, be the eastern end of the runway. And they were overran and they'd just gotten resupplied with some M79 rounds, which they were had been very effective at holding off the attackers up to that point. But what happened is the captain and his first sergeant were resupplied with practice ammo, which does not explode. So, you know, they were fucked at that point, got overran, killed. And he was a nice guy. I liked him and, you know, Another one dead, a couple more. But those Air Force guys in that security unit, they fought well that evening. They did a great job. So that's that was my Tet night. Now the next day, you know, we're up on that sand pile. It's quite high. To the west of us, there's a uh, compound of uh, Buddhist monks and it looked right down on us. It wasn't that far away. It was within rifle shot. And I was worried that the VC would take that over and, and use it as a, you know, a position to attack from. But they never did because there was an arrangement between those monks and the VC not to, you know, in other words, the monks paid a tax not to be involved in the war. That was common. The Michelin plantations did that too. But- Paying uh, a tax to the communist government, isn't that a little ironic? Well, yeah, it is obviously. But uh, 
you know, they gotta they gotta get make their money however they can. Wars cost money. Mm-hmm. Lots of money. People get rich on wars. Okay, so the next morning, here comes our dawn. And, you know, the fighting down at the other end of the runway had died down. But it had been a hell of a... It had been a hell of a battle down there. And we had been uh, staying low because there's a lot of uh, excess ammunition flying over our head and into our area and into our little bunker there um, from all the stray stray ammunition. Mostly it was uh, NVA stuff because they were, they were the ones trying to get into the base and they were shooting toward us also, but we were like a mile away. But still those bullets were raining down, down in there pretty good. You wouldn't want to be standing up waiting for one, seeing if one hit you. <laughs> and we didn't. So here comes dawn, beautiful dawn. And um, we hadn't brought a lot of water up there. And I drank pretty much all of mine that evening, that, that night. For some reason, I had a dry mouth. So I was getting up and I, was, I knew there was some more water in a five-gallon can down in the Jeep. So I was sitting on top of the bunker, enjoying the sun in my face, watching the few air attacks that I could see going on around the base. And I heard something whiz over over my head. And uh, Anderson said, get your ass down, you're being shot at. I looked over at him and I said, bullshit. He said, no, come on, get in here. And about that time, something thumped into the sandbags right under my ass. So that convinced me, and I rolled back into the bunker. You know, it was open top. Mm. And uh, he said, Some, a sniper was shooting at you. And I said, fuck. And it really made me madder in hell. <laughs> And I, I, I thought, that son of a bitch was trying to kill me. What the fuck was he trying to kill me for? And of course, it dawned on me that you know, he was trying to kill me because I was the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought of things that way, but that, that was the way they were. So I got real mad, and I started sticking my head up and looking, trying to locate that son of a bitch if I could. The only thing I could see out in that direction was a uh, an Arvin compound. No, that was the South Vietnamese Army. You know, our allies. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I have figured out that that's what it was. It was one of them shooting at me, probably U.S. trained sniper techniques. And his first shot went right over my head. His second one landed right under my ass. He had me bracketed. His third shot would have been right through me. Oh. But, you know, when, for, when it first, that first shot, I didn't recognize it for what it was. I didn't know that it was a bullet whistling by him. Anderson, being on his second tour, knew exactly what it was. He'd been shot at before. But I never had. That's my big war story about Ted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one hell of a story. All right. What else do you want to know? 
my next question is about Agent Orange. You've said you've seen Agent Orange in action. Yeah, a couple, three times. Those guys that uh, in those Agent Orange units uh, flying the 130s, they were called the Ranch Hands. That was their nickname. Hmm. Only we can prevent forests was their motto. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I remember being out in the field in this one place. We were, we were only out there a few days, but we moved a lot. I mean, we were constantly moving. So we went into this one area so that the 199th could probably form, form a blocking position while uh, something like the 1st Division made a, an anvil movement toward, uh, through a, a forest. So I'm working the PRD one and hear this hear a plane coming. Well, I knew the NVA didn't have any, so I wasn't too worried about it. Hmm. But it flew over, and uh, I took a look at it, and it was one of these C-130s, and it was spraying something. And eventually. Pretty quickly there, uh, this fine mist settled all around. There's an oily, made oily droplets on top of the uh, PRD-1 and on my uniform and skin and everything. And that was Agent Orange. So you were directly exposed to Agent Orange? Yes. Wow. A couple of times. That wasn't the first time, wasn't the last time. Now, I remember I was on Benoit Air Base and tet there and I'd spent a couple of weeks there. Well one of the areas I have to walk through to get to uh I don't know where I was going. I think there was a club on base and I'd walk through there from the barracks to that club and it was it was just off the runway and it was all the ranch hands were parked there and they were getting fueled up and main you know planes maintained and all this stuff. There were just puddles of this stuff there. You walk through Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can see these fools spraying one another with it, you know, playing jackass. And a lot of them are dead now. Um, in fact, I had a friend, I had a friend in Kansas City who was one of those guys on Benoit. I didn't know him then, but he was there. And he was an aircraft mechanic. And he and his buddies hijinks around and sprayed one another that crap. And he was he was dying from the Asian orange exposure, even as I knew him in Kansas City. So yeah, it's pretty deadly stuff. Now when I when I came back from Vietnam um, in about a year, I had the typical uh, first reaction to dioxin poisoning, which is boils. Hmm. They're on my back. They're big. They're huge. But they're like like a fifty cent piece. I don't know if you've ever seen an American fifty cent piece. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah, and they're like that big, and they're they're sore, and they form a little pus spot in the middle, and they break, and uh, they drain, and they go away eventually. So I had that happen on my back. I didn't know what it was. I had no clue. So. You know, it was a year after I come back to Vietnam. I 
I didn't associate the two. That's what it was. In retrospect, I know that. So yeah, I was heavily exposed at one point about 1980, about 1982, I think. The veterans organization was still trying to figure out what the hell all these soldiers were having uh, these problems from. They didn't, they didn't even know a hell of a lot about Asian Orange. They didn't know why this stuff that uh, Dow Chemical said was perfectly safe and you could drink it with no effects was look like look to be the problem and they eventually you know so the veterans department wanted to find everybody had been exposed to it so i went in for an interview and some some testing i was kind of wise to the va and the military and their bullshit by then so i took a tape recorder with me and i was going to record everything the doctor told me i told him I put I put the tape recorder out there on the desk and I said, Doctor, I, for my own good, I'm recording what we're saying today and uh, you know everything you tell me. And he said, Well, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, No. What does it mean? He said, I can't be as candid with you as I would normally be. I want to put it to put the recorder away, we can have the usual conversation I had. Don't want to put it away, that's okay. Um, I just can't be as candid with you as I normally would be with the patient. So, you know, that was kind of weird. Anyway, I recorded the thing, which I've, I've long lost that recording, by the way. <laughs> um, so that's that was my experience with Agent Orange. Yes, I was heavily exposed. So far, I haven't had any of the um, listings, you know, nothing on the list has occurred to me. And there is a, quite a long list of, you know, leukemia, for instance, is, I know that's on the list. If you have any kind of leukemia, you're automatically, and if you were exposed to Asian Orange, you're automatically eligible for support yeah. through the VA. So, that's my Agent Orange story. What else do you want to know about it? Because you know there wasn't just there wasn't just Agent Orange, by the way. There was Agent Purple, purple, black, orange, uh, blue, white. What would they all do? Were they all defoliants? They were herbicides. Yes, they use them on different kind of uh, areas. You know, like if you had a pine forest, you use one thing. If you've got a uh, deciduous forest, you use another type, et cetera, et cetera. And the only reason they, they were harmful to people was because the military loved it so damn much, they ordered it uh, in bulk volumes so vast that uh, Dow, Dow Chemicals sped up their manufacturing process, and that's where the dioxin came in. It was not supposed to be in there originally with original formula. Hmm. Also, I got no Agent Orange support uh, pretty much in my lifetime. Same thing with PTSD because the VA didn't recognize it as resulting from um, exposure to Agent Orange or in the case of PTSD as anything 
well, as something resulting from combat. They didn't know that. They, they had to do a bunch of research. And they fucked around, fucked around, fucked around for a couple of decades before they decided that PTSD was actually a real thing. And yeah, this crazy man here is actually suffering from it. Because of his, you know, because of his experiences in combat. Now, I wasn't supposed to have those experiences because I didn't have a combat military occupational specialty. I was not an infantryman. I was not an artilleryman. I was not a cavalryman. And yet you were sent to all of those units. Yeah, I worked with all of those units. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. I kept trying to get help for my PTSD. I was drinking my ass off and I. You know, my wife and I were damn near divorced. And, you know, I was fucking up big time. But anyway, we can get into that if you want to. I just give you a little grounder on how uh, PTSD come to be recognized eventually. But anyway, you ask about Agent Orange, so I think we finished that. Um, well, talking about experience, negative experiences with the war, After serving in Vietnam, how did you feel during the fall of Saigon? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I was a potter in Boston at that time. So I had a little studio there and uh, I worked with, uh, I worked with my girlfriend basically. And uh, we made pots and sold them all over the Northeast the USA. So, I was sitting there throwing pots one day and I was listening to the NPR station, the National Public Radio Station in Boston, WBS something or other, I forget what it was. Anyway, they were, the, the reporter was there at the embassy as uh, people were being evacuated off the roof of it and all the chaos around the embassy and all that stuff. And he was describing all that stuff and At some point, he began to describe that last helicopter. He, somehow he knew that was going to be the last one. And I, I stopped making pasta, and I, and I just, I broke down, cried like a baby at, at the waste and the horror and the, you know, the, everything. I, I knew so much by then, much more than I did when I was actually in Vietnam about the war and about how it, It had been uh, prosecuted and who did what, you know, I had read the Pentagon Papers, which primary, if you've not read those, you'll, you'll learn a lot by reading them. But it was just a whole tragedy to me. It, you know, I had fought so hard to bring the troops home. I've been to a lot of demonstrations in Washington and uh, I was a member of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And, uh, you know, it was, it just killed me when uh, we actually pulled out in the way that we did. And then the Paris Accords came. Yeah, that happened while I was in Vietnam. They were arguing over the table in 67-68. If I can quote you here, you say, and I, and I quote, The seemingly endless arguing over something as stupid as the shape of the negotiating table as fellow soldiers died. 
Fuck the Paris Accords. Those Vietnamese prolonged as long as they could. And, uh, you know, arguing over little, little bitty shit. Knowing damn well that the death toll on both sides was going up daily. And if you're an individual like myself and you, you have some rationality about you, and it just ain't right, you know. That's not what you do. But that was their game, and they were going to play it for everything they could do politically. Hmm. Politics of war. Politics of war, two different things. You ever heard the, there's a guy who's a Marine general, major general in the Marine Corps, name was Smedley Butler. And uh, he had two, he had won two medals of honor. And he put out a little pamphlet at one time after he got out of the service, after he retired, said, war is a racket. Yes, I remember that. Okay. So you, you read old Smedley's little, buck, little uh, pamphlet there? Yep. Well, I agree with him 100%. Yeah. It's the bankers that make all the money. You know who's going to make out like bandits when uh, all the shit in Syria mm-hmm. settles down? All the people go back in there to rebuild it, to finance the bankers and everything else. That's who's going to win that war. They're going to make billions. I agree. I agree. On a, on a more lighter note, you know, yeah. I um, when I heard you lived through the uh, 68, 69, I did some research and... <laughs> It's a little crazy because if you think about it, you've gone through some major historical events. If not MLK's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the moon landing, Woodstock, Muhammad Ali, the Manson murders. And then we think about today, you're living through this huge pandemic. Yeah. You just feel tired sometimes of... Sometimes do you just wish that you had a break and not every weekend live through another historical event? Sometimes I have felt that way. And you're right. I've been through a lot of shit in my life. Um, and this pandemic is about taking the cake. But I'll tell you what, I survived it. I've had my first uh, Pfizer in, uh, inoculation. I'm going this coming Friday, I'll get my second one. I'm going to declare myself a survivor. Now, I've always been a survivor. But, you know, you don't realize that at first. But then you go through so much shit that uh, you go, whoa, I'm still here. Must be something going on. I'm lucky. Or at the right place at the wrong time, whatever the hell it is. But yeah, I have I have felt that it's been a remarkable life. And in all among all that other stuff, I made a thousand parachute jumps. Are you kidding me for real? Yeah, I did. Wow. I, I skydived for a long time. Wow. Well, I think this is a good place to end our episode. I thank you so much for being our, our guest and sharing your story. Well, Matt, thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for accepting. And uh, I hope, I wish you well. Thanks, sir.